Welcome to Rear Tools. Our guidance on negotiation. Chapter 5. Preparation with an illustration. Part 1. Folks, this guidance answers three questions. How do I prepare for negotiation? What things do I need to consider before negotiation? How do I know what to ask for in a negotiation? Folks, if your knowledge of desk, high D's, I's, S's, and C's, the perfectionists, the Attila, the Huns, the marketers, the team players, if that has helped you become more effective at work, you'll want to seriously consider coming to our Effective Communications Conference. We set the basics of DISC in an hour or so, and then we spend the rest of the day teaching you how finally to communicate effectively, which is to pay attention to what your listener does and communicate in a way that makes sense to them. At the end of the day, you'll be able to read someone in a conversation, determine their major DISC tendency, and then based on that, make some changes in how you deliver to improve the chances that you get harmony and congruence and collaboration and not drama, conflict, and tension. Come see us. So, Wendy, we've talked in previous uh, guidance about negotiation, uh, which for the record, guys, does not include salary, (laughs) uh, about different principles and how to negotiate effectively with those principles underlying your, your approach. This week, we're going to talk about preparation, um, which most people grossly underprepare. And as I like to tell people, believe it or not, people who prepare a lot actually are more flexible because they understand the underlying drivers of the various factors, and therefore they understand the value of things as opposed to simply going in and winging it and basing it on relationships. Yeah, and all the people who think they can't think quickly, which most of us don't think we can, um, but still don't prepare. That's just silly. (laughs) Yeah. And even if you do think quickly, you can't think quickly through all the underlying stuff. If you're talking about something fairly complex, you can make a flash, you know, an intuitive flash, um, and it may or may not be right. Sometimes it's right, sometimes it's wrong. An intuitive flash that's built on a lot of hard work and preparing, much easier. Yeah. So the outline, uh, the first question is, what do you want? The second is, what will you be willing to give up? And to be fair, what you're saying is, these are questions we're going to ask ourselves before we negotiate. These are the rhetorical questions that we need to answer to prepare for an upcoming negotiation. Okay. What do you want? What will you be willing to give up? Okay. What do you not want or is not important to you? What do you think your negotiating counterparty will want? So important. And finally, we're going to give a parable to hopefully cement that in your minds. A classic negotiating story from a classic negotiating book, uh, Getting DS, uh, the Harvard Negotiation Project. Okay, good. So we start with the simple thing, the thing everybody thinks is all there is when it comes to negotiation preparation, which is what do you want? Right. And you think that's easy because, well, how hard can it be, right? You think, I, I want to buy a new car. Well, I need something that will take me from A to B, has an engine and four wheels. But actually, when you go to buy a car, there's a whole bunch of complex things like which, whether you want a radio and whether you whether you want a sunroof and do you want it in a special color that costs more. Uh, it's the same for everything. If you're booking a conference and you want a hotel room, you think, oh, well, I just need a hotel room to hold this many people. But if you phone the hotel and say, I want a hotel room for this many people, they'll start asking you a bunch oh, of yeah. other questions. Like, do you want tables and chairs? And how would you like them arranged? And do you want 
the attendees to have notepads and pens and water on the tables and do you need extra power strips? And by the way, that'll cost you more money. And negotiation in one sense can only happen on the complex things because if it were simple, you'd just go ahead and buy it. Like if you want printer paper and you want it like so many pounds and you want it in white, you just go find someone who's willing to sell it to you at that price or at the price you're willing to pay. So there's no negotiation involved. But as soon as there's all these kind of different pieces of a deal, that's when negotiation comes into play. The way I describe it to somebody who asked me on a recent trip I was on about, hey, you're you're doing negotiation, I noticed, on career tools, and I, I don't really have a need for that. I guess I'm surprised it's career tools. I said, well, of course, when you have a need for it, you won't have time to become spun up to knowledge. So... Uh, at least you'll know where the knowledge is, and that, of course, will be in our in our guidance and our podcasts and show notes. I said, but on the other hand, here's what's important: if your boss asks you to negotiate, and you've never negotiated, you've got two strikes against you. You don't know what the underlying principles are. You don't know how, how to approach it. But more importantly, your boss has just said that there is a loss that could happen in the difference of opinion between us and our counterparty. If there was no loss that could be involved, to put it differently, if the boss didn't care, then he would just say, well, take whatever their offer is, right? Mm -hmm. But the boss is saying, no, I want you to go negotiate. By definition, there is a losing proposition that could come out of that, meaning you have risk. And you need to ask yourself these questions in order to understand what the parameters of that risk are. And it wouldn't surprise me at all, in fact, if your boss says to you guys, I want you to go negotiate this this contract. I want you to negotiate this deal. And speaking of which, this is good timing. We'll probably deliver this podcast sometime in November or December of 2015. And Manager Tools and a new division of our company, Manager Tools Publishing, is in present negotiations, me and the company, with Wiley & Sons, a fabulous business book uh, publisher, uh, about the forthcoming publishing of our my new book, which is The Effective Manager. And we're having these discussions internally and recognizing what's the risk, what's the loss, what do we lose or potentially gain by arguing that point, what could happen, good or bad. And the more you understand about what you want, and not just be able to state it in a sentence, but understand all the parameters, all the details, things like power strips and hotel rooms, the more likely you are to understand how many variables there are, which variables are important to you and those that are not. But you can only know those variables if you do the preparation by digging into the weeds of what you actually want. So I think one of the things you, you talk about in the show notes, Wendy, is that negotiation only comes in when there are things on which to give and take, right? Yeah. And your boss knows that, and he or she wouldn't ask you to negotiate if there was no give and take. And that's why we say all the time. So therefore, you don't really negotiate, quote unquote, negotiate salary. Because <laughs> there's no give and take. There, right? Yeah, there's no, there's no more give. If you're a candidate for a job and they offer you a salary, you're not negotiating by saying, I want more. That's not negotiation. In the pejorative sense, that's you begging. In another pejorative sense, it's you being greedy. Um, you're not going back to them and saying, you have a position, I have a position, there's a difference. Let's negotiate that difference down to an agreement. You're not able to say, I'll give you more work effort. We assume that 
you've indicated that you'll give them all your work effort. I can't imagine that if you said to them, I've actually been negotiating with the idea that I'm only going to give you 90% of my work effort. And so now I'll give you that last 10% because I'll tell you what you did that to me. I would say, yeah, I think I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, that, is, that offer that was on the, now rescinded, that's my yeah, negotiation. Exactly. That's Shel Silverstein's, that's the ultimate example of Shel Silverstein's great poem, God's Wheel. So your point is, because there are always, in a negotiation, multiple items, and guys, if your boss is asking you, you may have to dig in, what do you mean by that, okay? You really have to have thought about what you want and drilling down specifically into the details. Even if it's just washers, right? Even if it's a, what you think of as a commodity, the materials, tolerances, shipping, timing, quality, guarantees, relationship, follow-up, return policies, contract deviations, choice of mediator, all that kind of stuff. And so many suppliers that use contracts, not that negotiation is only involved in working with suppliers, but so many negotiators, so many suppliers have lawyers heavily involved in their contracts development that they know every single place and the risk associated in every single place of contracts that they're going to negotiate with a potential purchaser, a customer. And they are powerful because they do this frequently and you are not. And if you're on that end of the deal, you better be preparing and you better know very specifically what you want. Yeah. I can't remember how long ago I read this, so I don't know if it's, I assume it's still true, that if you are supplying parts for cars and they're a part that's on the outside and they're therefore colored with the car, so like the bumper is self-colored with the rest of the car, that your truck has to arrive at the factory within its 20-minute window, which is quite common with delivery trucks, yeah. but also that the, the bumpers in the in the truck have to come out of the truck in, in colour order yeah. for the orders that are going through that day. So there'll be like a red one and a blue one and another blue one and yeah, a green one and absolutely. a red one. It's a fascinating part of history, business history, management history, organizational history, that for years there was little, if any, management of or intellectual vision or intellectual focus given to the supply chain. When markets are going well, as they did for a long time, as we built the modern infrastructure of roads and bridges and trains and sizes of shipping containers and so on, there's a great book a number of years ago, I want to say I wrote it, read it about five years ago, called The Box, the story of the designing, building, and proliferation of shipping containers. If you've ever seen a truck pulling a single shipping container, that's what they're supposed to be doing. And they're incredibly useful in terms of shipping and weight. Anyway, when we did all that, um, because there was so much demand uh, for so many years in the world, and I'm talking about, no offense, guys, I am talking about the building up of the, of the modern industrial infrastructure in the last 50 years, 60 years or so, during that buildup, we just needed to keep the supply chain as full as possible. And so we built warehouses everywhere. And companies began to develop enormous uh, uh, costs associated with keeping the supply chain, which they didn't really call supply chain back then, full. And then they realized that that was waste, that they could lean out the supply chain. But the risk of that was having idle, expensive labor 
meaning a robot that they paid a million dollars for that wasn't welding something because the part wasn't there. And rather than just having massive runs back and forth to the warehouse or having gigantic factories which had lots of storage space, um, they said, we're going to lean out the supply chain. And one of the ways we'll do that is you can't, we're not going to store stuff. So you have to deliver it. And yes, exactly. They, they know the exact order. They know when a car, and, and it's not just cars, of course, is going to be built. If a truck delivered to a Walmart store, a Walmart truck arrives at a Walmart store more than three minutes late, the store manager has the authority to not open the truck and send it back. And the reason why is Walmart did the math and discovered that if all Walmart trucks were more than three minutes late on a given day and all of those five people that were standing on the back of the Walmart loading dock at the store had nothing to do for five minutes and we lost that five minutes of productivity for five people in every Walmart store, it would cost Walmart something like $50 million a year. As they said, well, if the main reason why trucks are late is drivers and so on, we're going we're gonna to insist on drivers being on time since the whole point of the truck is delivering on time. And all of those things, you, you, I'm now talking more broadly, but all of the things that go into delivering those bumpers are negotiable. Exactly. I bet there's a penalty if you deliver more than 1% of your trucks with the wrong order of bumpers in it. Yeah. So, guys, it's critical that you know all the possible elements of the deal and know which are critical to you, which are important to you, which are neutral to you, which are of a concern to you, and then what might be dangerous for you not to get. All of those things being in play, uh, all of those things being related to one another. Um, if I start asking for more in one thing, the assumption will be that I'll lose somewhere else. So you have to be careful about wanting everything and getting it in five areas. And then the two areas that you leave for last that are most important to you, you have spent all your relationship capital. The other, that your counterparty now believes that this is a fight to the death and they'll simply say, no, you can't have those two things. Now you're forced to go back and give concessions on the previous five things. And they may choose to st stand their ground on the other two, the one that you wanted simply because they're stubborn and you've ticked them off it happens. Okay, so you gotta know what you want. Yeah. And then the next thing you've got to know is what you'd be willing to give up. Yeah, this is, this is the hard thing, particularly if you're an agent. If Wendy's my boss and Wendy says, Mark, go negotiate these housing, these uh, hotel contracts for all of 2016, which we just finished doing. And I didn't do it, by the way. Yeah. No. There's people that are better than I yeah, am. Yeah. And if you're the agent, if your boss has told you to do that, your boss is probably going to make it simple and say, you know, get, get what I want you're probably gonna have to go back to your boss and ask, what do you really want? Let me explain the details here. Let me, let's, let's look at this in a modular sense or in a detailed sense, what's negotiable, what's not. Now, if you're the agent and the entity, and so you're negotiating for yourself, there are some people who will say, fight on everything so that you'll be sure to get most of what you want on most everything. And of course, we talked about that before relative to its damage and relationship. But you have to know the varying value of the varying facets, the varying parts and pieces that make up the totality of the negotiation you're getting into. 
So I'm sorry, Wendy. This is a point near and dear to my heart, in part because we're negotiating on the book. Uh, in fact, I got, folks, just a little interesting aside, one of the first things that bothered us on the book is that uh, the, Wiley and the team at Wiley are fantastic people, and we're working very hard on our negotiation, on our relationship with them. But one of the first things, uh, for those of you who might be aspiring authors, they came to us. They knew the size of our market. They knew the size of our downloads. They assumed they're going to sell many tens of thousands of books um, because of the existing market, people like you, and we hope that's something you choose to do. And they said, and we want the rights, we want the copyrights to your book that you wrote for the term of your natural life plus 50 years. And there was nothing in the contract that said anything about how we might be able to get those copyrights back. And so one of the first things we said is, you can't have the copyright. Um, you can have distribution rights. I maintain the copyright, or actually the company does. And related to that, um, we need a performance clause in there. And it probably took us two months for them, for us to say, look, if you'll let me keep the copyright, we'll be more forgiving on the terms of the distribution and what constitutes non-performance. And the first thought we got is, the first response we got is, we don't do that. Yeah. Now, apparently no author has ever asked for that ever before. Yeah. And, and we actually then went further and said, now, look, we want you to make a ton of money. We do, because if you make a ton of money, so will we. And we're not saying it's a demand, because demands kill relationships. And we always want to leave some goodwill on the table. But we want you to understand, uh, we trust our counterparty here, until the point where they determine, we determine we can't trust them, and therefore we wouldn't do business with them. We trust you, and we want you to understand what the underlying things are that we want, and what we don't care about. We're glad you'll distribute, but we don't believe that you're holding the right to the copyright is, is beneficial. So I'm sorry, Wendy, I keep hijacking your guidance. We have to know what to want, and we have to know what we're willing to, to give, give up. up. So one of the things in the contract of the book, is to use that as an example, is that we will be allowed to have books for sale, but we're not allowed to use any retail channels. So we're not allowed to sell books directly on Amazon. We're not allowed to sell them to Barnes and Noble. Which is fine and with so us, on, right? Which is fine with us. Yeah, we were like, yeah, we're happy to give that and up. When we first asked to buy books, they said, well, we, we'll give you 20 copies personal. And they made a mistake. This is a classic. We'll see this revisited here when we do the parable at the end of the show, that they assumed that we were going to buy books to sell them, which is in fact true. To their world, they're going to sell books, we're selling books, we're in competition with them, that's not good. Well, they perceived us selling books as on Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, that we would become, we would be given distribution rights, but we would somehow then be distributing them as well, which we never intended. We asked for the ability to buy books, and they initially refused. And I understand why. It makes sense from their perspective. But we had to say, no, we don't want to sell against you. In fact, it would embarrass us if we found out we were doing anything that got in the way of you making money on this, because we want you to make money. So there was basically a misunderstanding about what we intended those books to be for. Then when we finally realized, when they finally realized we're going to pay for the books as much as Barnes and Noble did, they're like, well, yeah, of course, we're making as much money on that book as we would selling it to Barnes and Noble. We want you to have those books rather than them trying to sell their books on our website, which seems clumsy. But then the next piece that 
came up because of that was then they also said, yes, but if you buy books from us, we won't pay you royalties. And we said, well, why not? Barnes and Noble gives you 10 bucks for a book or 20 bucks or 30 bucks, whatever it is. And I get a royalty check or the company, Manager Tools Publishing, gets a royalty check. And they said, no, that's not how it works. And so that's part of our negotiation right now. Why, if you're making the same amount of money, why wouldn't we get a royalty check? Or why wouldn't I get a discount for the royalty check that you would have paid? And these are the kind of things you have to think through. And for the record, Mike and I actually are pretty good at negotiations. Um, we have a whole team focused on this. And we still come to moments where we say, uh-oh, as we break this detail down into more details, there are some parts of this detail. This detail actually has five subparts, three of which are important to us, two of which are not. Can we arrange the negotiations such that we get those three and not those other two? What that would mean then is this individual detail would have to be separated in some way in the language of the contract. Exactly. Curiouser and curiouser. <laughs> it is. So another example of things that you might be willing to give up. So perhaps we wanted those washers that we were buying earlier uh, boxed in 500s because for some reason we use them in 500s yeah. or, or we use them in variations of 500s and it's helpful to be able to collect three or whatever that we need for any particular job. Right. But actually, if they came in thousands, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Or if it came in five thousands, we could make that work too. So that might be something we want, but we're willing to give up. And that piece about it being something we want and therefore having value to us, that becomes important later when you're thinking about those things. And remember those washers when you think about what the counterparty might want or not want. If they have a standard box of 5,000, it costs them money, or put it differently, there are there are costs associated with making a different box, time, design, and of course, it's slightly more expensive, I would guess, in most situations, to do 10 boxes of 500 rather than one box of 5,000. If we assume that for a moment, they're going to have costs. If price is super important to us, and now the price is changing because of that, we may say, okay, we don't want that. And knowing that may change how we approach that discussion point in the uh, in the negotiation. Yeah. And those things that you're willing to give up have to have value. Yeah. <laughs> you can't just say, oh, I'll give that thing up that I really don't care about. Because if you give something up that doesn't have any value and you expect something in exchange for that. So, for example, say you're paying for this, this conference that we're um, creating and we say we really want the contract to be in a certain month because there's some advantage to us in terms of when the revenue when the cost is booked and we ask for that and then when they say oh well we, we're going to charge you for having the room for two hours the night before so that you can set up if we say okay well we'll give up something that we don't care about they've given something up and we've given nothing of value back whereas if we can say okay if you wipe that cost will allow you to invoice when it makes most sense to you and if that has value to them then they will probably strike that cost it has to be there has to be some equality in the value of the things that you're willing to give up so the things you give up can't all be the things that you don't care about there has to be some value to them and what this what often happens is you think about the value of something you want you essentially give what amounts to a canard a fake thing in return and you say to yourself 
I'm mastering this. I'm getting what I want and giving them stuff I don't want. And you're implying that you're willing to behave in an untrustworthy way or an untransparent, not to suggest that all negotiations are completely transparent. You're willing to bet on your counterparty's ignorance. And the problem is you're not that smart and they're not that dumb. That's one of Horstman's laws. And you end up creating ill will. And you may get what you want, but the next contract you have will be, you, you will now be spending more time negotiating with a different hotel when in fact you would hope to come back to the same one because they don't want you as a customer anymore. Or they just raise the prices overall. And there may be um, a barrier to exit in that situation that is not worth it to you. And now you got what you wanted the first time and they took it out of you the second time. And unfortunately, that damages the relationship even further. You can never take the people out of this. As rational as you think you're being, as, as rational as it seems to be to talk about deliveries and numbers and how many and how much, there's always people involved and people are irrational and people need to feel like it's fair as well as make money on the deal, right, both sides. Okay. So this is the difficult one to read. Yeah. What do you not want? What is not important to you? So when we've gone through that list of elements, we want to think about the things that we don't want or the things where we don't mind how they come. So for instance, those washers that we were talking about, say you're manufacturing something and those washers are going to be buried way deep inside the mechanics and nobody's ever going to see them again. They're just going to be put there and that's it. Never see the light of day. So it makes no difference to you what color they are. Because they'll never be seen. It's not like they're on the outside and a black one will mar your lovely white surface. Um, and you can express that in one of two ways. You can either say, I don't want a specific colour, or you can say, it's not important to me what colour it is. And depending on which way your brain thinks, I think both make sense to different people. And so even though the colour has no value to you, it might still have value to the person you're negotiating with. So, for example, if they have the right number of washers made of the right metal and the right tolerances and all which were painted white for a previous deal that fell through, you might take those washers and there's no value to you in taking them because it makes no difference to you what the colour is, but it makes the deal easier for them. So you can't trade these kind of things for something you want, but you can kind of smooth the negotiation, you can smooth the deal and make it easier for them to agree to by giving some of these things that are less important to you. Yeah. And understanding it may have no value to you. You know that inherently, but you may not know how much value it has to your counterparty unless you've thought through what do you think your counterparty needs? Can, can you put yourself in their shoes? And a lot of times when you look at the deal, you realize that had each side known each other's position, we could have done this without a contract. It was clear. Now, it's not always that way, and we don't assume it's going to be that way. We hope for the best. We plan for the worst. We over-prepare, but we think through this sort of stuff. Yeah, and it's often it's not until they say, hey, we, we can do this deal, and we can do it you know, this week or whatever if you'll accept X. And you have to know that that is not important to you or or that's tolerable to you in order to be able to say yes at that moment. And 
this stuff drags on. It takes a long time to negotiate. And if there's any point at which you can say, I'll agree to that because I've already thought about it and I can, we can move on to the next point. That's great. Two points. I've already thought about it. That's really important. And the other piece is you have to consider the cost of the additional month. If it's going to take another month to negotiate, that's another month of lost revenue. People miss this all the time. In fact, I know I'm going to get hate mail for this, and I don't mean it, guys. I only am going to mention this example because Mike and I were just were talking about it relative to a major customer of ours that was struggling in a particular area, and we were asked to help, is the issue of internal support agencies. In this particular example, it happened to be IT that was essentially saying, no, we need to wait three months because it has to be right. And the first thing that went through the mind of their internal customer in marketing was, that's going to cost a million and a half dollars. And what's interesting is IT said, and we're about to tell you how much more it's going to cost you internal internal costs in addition to the lost revenue. Let's say it was 1.5 million on each side. That's $3 million impact to the pro forma or the budget or the plan. And each side knows the cost on their side, but it's the total that really, really hurts. And then, of course, the next piece of information you need is how much is it going to cost if we put it out now and there's a mistake in it? Exactly. Yeah. Well, of course, NIT would say that's priceless. (laughs) That's a a MasterCard commercial. (laughs) And marketing are full of high eyes. Well, whatever, we'll sort it out. Yeah. I don't don't think either is as simple as we make it, right? Well, you know what? We've been talking a long time and we're not going to get done. So let's, let's stop here. Let's come back to it in a week and we'll continue talking about knowing what you don't want and knowing about counterparties and also share the parable with everybody. Okay, cool. See you next week, folks. Bye, everyone. That's it for this week, folks. See you next week. We'll finish up. Career Tools produces actionable guidance for professionals every week. To receive additional materials via our newsletter and to find products for situations you may face, go to www.managertools.com. Search for Career Tools on Twitter and LinkedIn.